Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. For many people, the word Inca conjures up images of an ancient civilization in South America, of their so-called lost cities, like Machu Picchu in Peru. The word Inca is also often associated with the Spanish, for in the 1500s the Spanish sought to conquer the Incas, Andean lands, for gold and to spread Christianity. The old story is one of the Spaniards' seemingly Herculean and instant conquest. Spanish guns, horses, armour and germs. No match for the Incas. Time for some debunking. As today's guest will explain, the Incas were a cosmopolitan, wealthy, complex people. And while their history is absolutely and inextricably linked with Spain, this is no simple story of speedy conquest. In many ways, the Inca and the Spanish shared a similar trajectory, and their stories are tightly woven in decades-long battles, resistance, defeat and success on both sides. I'm delighted to be joined today by Alan Covey, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin. Professor Covey's research addresses the development and organisation of ancient empires with a particular focus on the Incas. He continues to conduct archaeological surveys and excavations to collect data on the rise and fall of the Incas and works in the archives of Peru and Europe to construct a richer understanding of the impact of early modern European expansion in the Andean world. He is the author of Inca Apocalypse, The Spanish Conquest and the Transformation of the Andean World, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. And this podcast was recorded at St. Cross College, Oxford. Professor Covey, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Can we start today by defining what we mean by Inca? Who were the Incas? When and where did they live? Sure. I like to think of the Incas at three different levels. One is the actual Inca ruler. So the Inca is a title, first of all, and and the male ruler of the empire took the title Sapa Inca, which meant the ruler that has no counterpart or equal. So there was something unique about that title. But then there is something also unique about the people that we think of as the Incas. And they're a group of people that live in the Cusco Valley of what is today the highlands of Peru. And so just that part of the Andean mountains, a bunch of maize farming, valley bottom dwelling farmers that that trace back about 12 generations to a common ancestral emergence. And then the biggest sense would be what we would call the Inca Empire. And that would be this political entity that extended its power from southern Peru, where its capital was, all the way up to northern Ecuador and southern Colombia to the north, and down to central Chile and northwest Argentina to the south. 
there's a lot of areas within that region that the Incas didn't really control. And they didn't use the term Inca Empire. They used a term called Tawantinsuyu, which meant the four different regions bound together so that they didn't think of their empire as being Incas. They thought of themselves as Inca people that were dominating all of the different eco-zones and all the different diverse people of the Andean world. That's really clear. Thank you. So to follow on from that, I think it would also be useful to outline how we know about the Incas and how this has changed over time. Because I gather that in the last 50 years or so, how we know what we know has gone through a lot of change. Sure. The Incas are often put up as an example of the exception to the idea that ancient civilizations had writing. The Incas didn't have written text. They recorded numbers and certain classes of information on a knotted cord called a kipu. But any history or law that they might have had, if it's recorded in the kipus that survive today, we're unable to extract that. And so everything that we have about the Incas comes from after the Spaniards came in in the 1530s. And we could really distinguish between chronicles, which would be Spaniards that are writing about Inca life after the fact. So it, it might be to say, we need a history of what this dynasty looks like, or we need a description of its religion, or we need to know something about its tribute system or its economy. So things that were written for colonial purposes and sometimes intellectual purposes that were developing in Europe at the time. And then there are also documents that we would call archives, which are the everyday bureaucratic record that Imperial Spain was collecting. So you might have people who are claiming land. And in the lawsuit, they're saying, this is the land that we had in Inca times. And so that's a documentary record that grew over about a century after the Spanish came in the 1530s. There's a period where eyewitnesses are talking about, they're able to swear to the things that they've seen. And then you move into a period where people are talking about stories that their parents or their grandparents told them or myths that they have. And you get a lot of things that are written about the Incas just because people are writing for different purposes. And a really important point of that record is most of it wasn't published and wasn't available at the time. So there was room to say a lot of different things about the Incas, but it's only in the 1800s that we start to see a lot of rediscovery and publication of the chronicles and the archives. And it's really only in the second half of the 20th century that we see archeology span playing a big role. And that's probably, as you pointed out, this is a field that's being transformed in recent decades. Part of it's by new history, but a lot of it is archaeology, going out and making inventories of the sites that are on the landscape, excavating administrative centers and households and tombs. And one of the things that archaeology has shown us is despite Inca claims to dominate all of the Andes, we can see all of these different pockets where it's hard to see the empire at work. And so this is something where in the last 50 years, we've seen archaeology from going from maybe window dressing to colonial histories to being a line of evidence that can tell us sometimes which colonial accounts are more accurate, if any of them are actually accurate. I love it when you get an archaeological record that comes and disrupts all our verities from the written sources. Taking this combination, this sort of collection of evidence together, what can you tell us about the nature of Inca society, in how it was ruled, how society was organized, even what kind of economic system they used? Sure. 
I think one of the things that's emerged as archaeology has really been brought into the picture is the word diversity and negotiation. Those are really shaping our sense of what the Incas are doing outside of Cusco. So Inca territory covers about 60% of the Earth's landforms. It's incredibly diverse. And the Incas, as I said earlier, are this valley bottom highland group that they're tied to maize agriculture. But up on the hill slopes above them, there are people that are growing potatoes and tubers, and they're dependent on all of these different micro environments of the mountains and all of these different precipitation patterns. And if you go down to the coast, you have people that are fishing some of the world's richest fisheries in the Pacific Ocean and doing really productive irrigation agriculture in the desert valleys. And they have a very different tradition of urbanism and political hierarchies and production of really fancy featherwork and textiles and gold and monument construction. It's a very different looking world. But if you go over the Andes to the other side, you get into this lush Amazonian landscape where people are shifting around, growing different kinds of crops and organizing themselves and speaking different languages. And so in this really diverse world, what we see is there's a lot of different cultural logics for organizing at the local level, that you might have highland communities where groups of extended families are managing the land together and they're sharing the risk and they're sharing the foods that are being produced and really acting in a pretty economically self-sufficient and a decentralized way. Down on the coast of what's today northern Peru, you have an empire called the Chimu, and they have a capital city of 40 or 50,000 people, and they have guilds of artisans that are making really fancy metalwork and making pottery and other things that people are consuming at rates that are unimaginable for highland people at that time. And so you have this huge range of economic practices and political organization from very egalitarian to very complex. And the Incas kind of move into the middle of that. And I think part of their logic is to take their palace and their capital city, which they're trying to promote as the center of the world, and connect them to the local. And so they build an administrative hierarchy of mostly male figures that connect the Inca ruler and close relatives who stand in for him as governors or as provincial inspectors, connect them to local heads of maybe 10,000 households or 500 households or local kings or queens that are down on the coast. And so there's a lot of just diverse local practices that are linked through this administrative center. The Incas are trying to actually change the economy of the Andes. So people on the coast were finding that they're doing a lot more trade. We find things like balances for use use in trade. We're finding pieces of metal that are probably used for exchange, some kinds of things that we might think of as currency, shell bangles that, that can be traded for other kinds of objects. Whereas in the highlands, people are, when they trade, they're maybe trading llamas for potatoes. They're trading foodstuffs or, or really basic staple goods. So as the Incas are taking over the Andes, one of the things they're trying to do is to make their provinces economically self-sufficient for everyday goods, like plain cloth or potatoes 
or corn, but they're trying to channel exotic materials to Cusco. They want Cusco to be the center of the universe. And so gold is sent there. When they're able to get colorful feathers from the Amazon, that's sent there. When they get shell from the waters of the Pacific, that's sent there. And then they have craft workers that transform those things into things that can either be used as offerings or held by the Inca to give out as gifts. So there's a kind of attempt to monopolize the production of wealth where the Incas could manage it. But we know from the archaeological record, if you look at any museum collection of Inca material, there's really rich stuff. And a lot of it comes from tombs along the coast, which is this other world for the Incas that they were never fully capable of transforming the local economy. So there's still a lot of variation, even as they're promoting an imperial project that's going to make them economically different and make their world one that materially looks different, that's full of a lot of wealth goods that ordinary people don't have. I mean, that's a fascinating sense of the variety in this culture that we think of under this one name. And actually, you've given us from one end to the other, I mean, 40, 50,000 people in a city is huge at the time. And that kind of level of artisan craftsmanship is really striking. Beyond the sort of people in their immediate vicinity who they're kind of bringing into this system of empire, how much contact do we think that the Incas had with other peoples and places? Well, one thing we know is that they don't have direct contact with Mesoamerica, which is this other civilization center in the Americas. So there isn't a direct link with the Aztecs, even though they're both flourishing at the same time. There is some maritime trade that's going along the Pacific coast from Mesoamerica down to Central America and from the Pacific coast of Peru north towards Central America. But there isn't a direct Context. So the Incas thought of themselves, they claimed to be the only civilization ever to develop in the Andes, which archaeologists can say is not accurate today. We know of states and empires like Wari and Tiwanaku that came before. So in that sense, they claimed uniqueness in, in time, in history, as a civilization. But then they also explained their inability to expand beyond their final frontiers by describing the people at their margins as savage. And so up in Quito, in Ecuador, they had a military frontier and they thought of the people on the other side as uncivilizable. Uh, even though if they were to conquer 100 kilometers, 200 kilometers to the north, they're really highly populated valleys in Colombia and groups like the Muisca that have their own religious and political hierarchies and their own networks that, that were pretty substantial at the time. And then to the south in Chile, the Mapuche people, the Spanish called Araucanians, the Incas described getting to those frontiers and saying, well, there aren't enough people to conquer. The people here don't eat like we do. They don't live in communities like we do. They say this on the Amazonian slope as well. And even though it's really clear they want the resources of that area, the South Central Andes have turquoise and they have copper and they have tin to make bronze and they have silver. They describe the people as not people that they want to have a relationship with. These are people that are not a part of their civilization. So even I think by the time the Spanish got there, the imperial conquests had ground down and they were developing a narrative where they were saying lowland people and people beyond the frontiers are not like us. And we don't have to treat them like human beings based on the rules that we have within our empire. Now, I'm aware from what we've just said that to talk about Inca society generally is 
difficult, but I'm going to use it as a convenient phrase for the purposes of this question, which is that I was fascinated to learn from your work that there's much more of a story to be told about the nature of women's lives and female power in Inca society than we have traditionally known. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, I think one problem with the depiction of women's lives in the conquest is that the people that are writing it are, are European men early on. And the conquistadors are men who have left their own communities, their female relatives, if they're married, they've left their wives behind, and all the rules that constrain them as good members of a society and people that are behaving in a moral way by the rules of their gender. By the time they got to the Andes, many of them had become very, very comfortable doing very brutal things to indigenous women. But they also were coming from a patriarchal society so that when Spanish men went into Inca temples, it wasn't uncommon for them to say there are 500 temple assistants who are women and there's one old man standing around who's not doing anything, but he must be the priest. He must be like the Pope. And so they literally described thousands of Inca priestesses by this less active term, in part because Catholicism at the time was more actively enclosing nuns and making it really clear that they couldn't do things like prepare the sacrament, eventually with the Council of Trent saying they had to stay in the cloister. And so this is something that European men literally couldn't see, the female power that was going on around them. But one of the really curious things is by the time they move from the Inca city of Cajamarca, where they've captured this Inca warlord, Atahualpa, and held him for ransom, by the time they move toward the Inca capital in Cusco, they have Inca princesses that are traveling with them. And some of those Inca princesses are already pregnant with the children of the leading conquistadors because Inca women did a lot of this kin work, that part of their work and part of their power in the empire was to consolidate relationships between their families of origin and the people of Cusco and provincial dynasties and the administrative elite of all these different parts of the empire. So by having children, they literally reproduced the high offices of the empire and they could then kind of nudge. So you have all these stories of favorite wives of the Inca putting forward their children, convincing the Inca to give their sons more power. And so this is one sense that when I teach this to undergraduates, I say Inca male power tended to be what we think of as hard power, the political and military hierarchies that govern down from the Inca emperor to the household or to the local community or to the local society. Whereas Inca women did work that governed outward by linking the palace to all of these other families, the kin networks that are also governing landscapes and holding together the political networks. They also governed upward to supernatural objects. So in the Andes, people believed that mountains and other important features had personalities and power. And so women as priestesses also did the work of feeding them and giving them drink that they needed and making clothing that could be offered to them. And so the need to give reverence to higher powers, this is something that I think even 1970s second wave feminism had a hard time seeing this work 
as powerful because it's work that we think of as women's work or domestic, that cooking and weaving and brewing, which are fundamental and transformative things, it was hard to imagine them as powerful. But these are things that if you don't feed the golden statue of the sun and offer it uh, clothing and offer it drink, there is a question of how long your universe is going to continue. This is work that's important to maintaining not just the Inca political order, but the universe itself. And so you have within the palace, uh, we've used this kind of Eastern model. I think Western literature about the Inca palace came to see it as one male ruler and then a harem of women that did very little. Instead, I think we can think of the Inca palace as this intersection of a lot of different powerful women that are connected to all of these other social networks that keep the empire bound together and who also have a lot to say about who the next ruler is going to be and a lot to say about who's going to be appointed to different places. And so within that palace, the Koya is a unique female title who is thought of as the sister and wife of the Inca. And I think we could think of her as, especially by the later decade of Inca expansion, as a figure that oversees a lot of temples, a lot of religious women, who owns property in her own right, who does some political things also. We do see women sometimes as military commanders and political administrators. And then so seeing the Koya as compressing a huge amount of different power that then complements the political work that the Inca emperor is doing. That's utterly fascinating. The fact that they are absolutely in positions that we would acknowledge as being powerful, but also they are doing things that it has taken us a long time to recognize as work, but that is work. And that idea that it is possible to walk in to a space and literally not see what's going on before your eyes because of the obscuring aspect of your own lenses. And you cannot see that these women have power because women don't have power in your society in that way. Well, they did have in Spanish society, if you think of Isabel of Castile, but obviously, more generally, it's hard for people to get their heads around that. That's so fascinating. Now, one of the sort of narratives that's often trotted out about the meeting of the Spanish and the Inca is that we've got the Spanish as a kind of modern entity and the Inca as this untouched ancient civilization. And in your research, when you're talking about the Inca apocalypse, the Spanish conquest, the transformation of the Andean world, what you're making very clear is this idea that both the Spanish and the Incas have imperial trajectories. Can you outline the ways in which there are actually similarities that we need to draw out in terms of attitudes and trajectories here? Yeah, I think that was one of the most interesting things about that book project was trying to break down this divide between ancient and modern. And that's one of the things that the Incas have been made to play in Western readings of what their empire is, is is as we've created these simple distinctions of saying, in the world, there are societies of law and there are societies of custom. Uh, because the Incas don't have writing, they become a, a society of custom. Uh, there are modern societies and ancient societies. They become ancient. And there are civilized societies and barbarians. They're lumped into barbarians. And so this is something the Incas have been made to be sometimes the best that the non-Western world could throw at Western expansion. And they become this sort of metaphor in some ways but breaking that down, one of the interesting things to me was even worldview that, you know, the Spaniards that came into the 
Andes for the first time, they didn't doubt the Inca interpretation that sacred places had a power to them. They just believed it was demonic, that they also believed in sacred powers and they also invoked miracles and they brought sacred objects and they kept sacred bodies. So that was something that really I think informed how I started thinking about the two societies. And to talk about their trajectories, both of them were a few generations into a process of expanding beyond their comfortable cultural boundaries. And both of them were also expanding in worlds that they thought could come to an end, that had an uncertainty about where they were headed. And so on the Iberian side, if we go back a few centuries into the 1200s, you see the Iberian kingdoms are still in this process of consolidating and promoting Catholicism, using the Inquisition to promote a sort of cultural and religious unity that hadn't existed before. For the Andean world as well, we could take the Incas back to around the mid-1200s, where we see that they're really engaging with different groups in their own region and starting to interact probably with Aymara-speaking groups or maybe visiting some of the creation shrines uh, that lie beyond the territories that are familiar to them. And so this is something that they both come from a deeper process of consolidating local power, expanding territorially, and then reaching a point where they have to jump beyond comfortable limits. So if we think about Castile and Aragon, that's moving off of the Iberian Peninsula. And so we could look at the Aragonese moving into the Balearic Islands and then over into southern Italy and making alliances eastward with this aspiration of, of Jerusalem, of taking back the Christian capital. And in fact, the crown of Aragon claimed that title of King of Jerusalem at the time that they were moving into the Inca world. Whereas Castile then was moving to the south, into the Canary Islands. And then after being unable to challenge Portugal on the western coast of Africa, off to the west into the Americas. And so then for the Incas as well, they they expanded quickly in the highlands, the central Andean highlands, moving against decentralized groups that mostly a lot of them are living on ridgetop sites that a lot of them are in conflict with neighboring groups. But the Incas also then had to move down onto the coast against these wealthy city-states and empires and eastward into the Amazonian slope where people were culturally and linguistically really different. And I think something that kind of brings this together is in the years before the Spanish and the Incas really came into confrontation at Cajamarca in 1532. There's a period where the Spanish are on the coast of Colombia and Ecuador, having a miserable time of it, being driven out of local villages, having to steal food, losing you know half of their men at a time, uh, starving to death. And the Incas are also up in the highlands of Ecuador struggling with the same things. They're fighting against local confederacies that don't want to become Inca. And both sides are becoming increasingly brutal as the ease of their conquests is slowing down, as the difficulty of bringing in more foreign people is rising. They're finding it's easier to deal with people in brutal ways. And so the idea that Francisco Pizarro and Atahualpa are years before they come face to face, might be sleeping two or 300 kilometers apart from each other, fighting the same groups by some of the same strategies. They're both in a phase where the easy conquests have already taken place and it's a lot harder to take and hold new territory and a lot harder to figure out what you're going to do with new subjects. 
Hi there, I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal and society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, if we think about the moment of their encounter, your book, Inca Apocalypse, is full of the most incredible stories of encounter between the Spanish and the Inca. But when is the first recorded encounter and what happened? Yeah, so I, I think it depends on who you're calling Incas. So, and again, that gets back to this idea that there are different ways of thinking about Incas. The Incas themselves, the people of Cusco, the men would pierce their ears and wear large ear spools. And that was a unique privilege to them. And so the Spaniards learned to call them orejones or big ears. So Spaniards really quickly, once they started meeting actual Incas, they knew if they were talking to someone that had power and authority in the empire because they had those ear spools. But the earliest contact we could go back to the 1520s, where there's an explorer who comes back to Panama and he says, I heard that a little bit beyond where I was just exploring, there's a native lord and he's really rich. And that guy couldn't go back and keep his expedition going. But Francisco Pizarro and his partners got permission. And after some real disastrous experiences along the coast of Colombia and Ecuador. Francisco Pizarro and a few men made it down into the waters that were more or less in Inca territory, again, at the very, very farthest margins of the empire. So places that had been recently incorporated where the people weren't culturally Inca. And so the first contact between people from that world and the Spaniards was the Spanish ship captured an ocean-going sailing vessel that was coming up from Peru. 
that was full of fancy cloth and gold work and precious stones that were going to be traded for spondylus shell that people used for offerings and for jewelry in the Inca world. And they captured the local people and they actually took the young men and they became the interpreters on the later expedition. They, some of them would have gone back to Europe with them and learned Spanish so that they could translate a few years later. On that expedition, they managed to keep sailing south. So they said, we need to figure out where this ship came from. And they came into the coastal cities. And again, this is a very different world from the highland Inca. But they came into the city of Tumbes, which is today in far northern Peru. And some of the men went to shore. And among the people they met were the priestesses in the temple. So some of the first Inca officials that they met were these religious women. And they met the Inca governor there, and there was a palace to the Inca. And so they had a few very limited contacts. And from that, they thought, okay, the native lords are very friendly. There is this, some ruler that controls a huge area that we haven't come in, in contact with. And that's when Pizarro then had to go back at the time for his expedition was done. And he ended up going to Spain to get permission for his next expedition. And that was the one where if we think about uh, them meeting actual Inca people from the highlands, it's really when the Spaniards are back in Peru in, in 1532, making their way along the coast uh, and then sending their cavalry up into the highlands, that they're meeting Inca military commanders and, and messengers and spies and emissaries that are coming from Atahualpa. So the next time they're back, Inca geopolitics have changed a lot. Both sides have a much different sense of needing to meet each other and needing to figure out how to have the kind of confrontation that they're going to get the most out of. The other idea that you challenge is really, I suppose, the idea of a Spanish conquest at all, because, you know, the conquest has, so-called, has been written up as this kind of victory of the West. And actually, you write instead about the Spanish continued failures, the centuries-long resistance by the Inca, or Incas, plural, perhaps. Could you give some examples of these continued failures that could illustrate that point? There's a tendency when we think of the age of exploration or we look at the map of Spanish control in the Americas, maybe a tendency to not see things falling apart behind the Spaniards. So the Spaniards move into the Caribbean, but by the late 1500s, they've abandoned the entire island of Hispaniola except for Santo Domingo because they're worried about pirates, English pirates in particular. They move through Panama but they so depopulate that area that by the time they're moving into the Andes, people are saying, wow, we hope that this works out because we can bring so many enslaved people from there and restore a labor force that's going to, to sustain us. And then across the Americas in general, if you were to put the map of what Spain claimed under the Treaty of Tordesillas in the 1490s against what it actually occupied, Spain was really unsuccessful in a lot of areas. In the Andes, they were unsuccessful in taking and holding all the territory that the Incas had. And not until the 18th century did they move down into parts of the Amazon that were kind of at the edge of Inca frontiers. We could think of that as sort of a mercantilist expansion as people are going for things like cinchona bark and rubber and, and other kinds of commodities and where you have late Jesuit missionary expeditions where people fully expect to be martyred moving down into those distant frontiers. So this is something that the Spanish did really well 
on the coasts because that's where their ships could go to and from. They didn't do so well in the indigenous interiors, which is where the Incas, the core of their empire was. And so I think one thing to kind of start out with is to Andean people, the conquistadors didn't look like conquerors. They tended to travel around with Inca armies. When they ate and drank Inca food, that was a sign that they were Inca subjects. When they actually, the day before they captured the warlord Atahualpa at Cajamarca, the Spaniards went to him and offered to fight for him and conquer his enemies for him on behalf of Charles V. But to Andean people, it looked like they were surrendering. And so when they moved to Cusco, they had Inca princesses and they moved into the houses of those women's, into the palaces that those women came from. They looked like bad house guests more than conquerors. And so even as they're doing this crazy stuff, like founding a city called Cusco within the plaza of a city called Cusco, where Francisco Pizarro says, don't throw anyone out of their houses, don't move the religious women, don't make anyone mad, but saying we're celebrating that we have established a city. Andean people would have seen it otherwise. And in some ways, I think that we could look at some of the conflict that was fought in the early years as a continuation of the factional fighting and the civil war that the Incas themselves were experiencing before the Europeans got there, that uh, Inca factions wanted to make friends with the Spanish and then other non-Inca people. There were provincial lords that didn't want to be part of the empire. So in terms of resistance, this is something that for a couple of years, that it looks like the, the Spanish are just there grafting onto the Inca hierarchies that are there. But it's the fact that they continued to just plunder and violently plunder the people of Cusco. They alienated the ruler that they had helped come to power, a man named Manco. And he raised an army that's estimated in the hundreds of thousands and marched it against the Spaniards who were in Lima, which they had founded as their new capital, and in Cusco. And the Spaniards survived because a lot of Incas, especially Inca women, stuck with them. So there is an Inca princess who raised an army to go fight for the Spaniards. And there are Inca women who warned the Spaniards of what the Inca men were doing. And there are Inca women that convinced their male relatives to bring all of their fighters over to support the Spanish side. So Manco wasn't able to drive the Spanish out of the Andes, but then he retreated into his own kingdom called Vilcabamba. And it's only a couple hundred kilometers from Cusco, but the Spaniards couldn't actually conquer that. And so this is a case where there's kind of a stalemate where the Incas couldn't drive the Europeans out because more and more and more Europeans kept flooding in and there were enough native alliances to keep them alive and support them at the time. But the Spaniards couldn't drive the Incas out of Vilcabamba. And so, so Manco Inca and his descendants occupied that area for about 40 years after the Spaniards arrived. And the roads between Lima and Cusco passed nearby there. And the Spaniards said, we don't go with fewer than about 15 people because we, we don't actually feel safe on that road. They were terrified throughout the highlands that the Incas might come back or they might rebel. People were escaping to Vilcabamba, probably enslaved people of African heritage were escaping down there. Spaniards that were rebels ended up down there with Manco and the Incas that were down there rebuilt a capital and actually expanded and continued to build alliances with people in the Amazonian lowlands, there's this 
not very well-known project of continued empire building for 40 years until the Spaniards actually go in. Instead of enforcing a treaty that they had with the rulers of Vilcabamba, they invade and capture the surviving Incas and bring them back and execute the one that they say is their ruler. So this is something for decades there still is a question of whether the Incas might still be kings of Peru. There are still Incas out on the landscape. And even after the kingdom of Vilcabamba falls, the legend of El Dorado is still one. You know, Walter Raleigh ends up looking for El Dorado. And he's with this story that the Incas actually came from England. They were Incas from Inglaterra and that he was going to go in through into Guyana and find this lost city of Incas that still hadn't been conquered. There were people that came out of the jungle, supposedly, and claimed to be the last Inca or the descendants of Incas that remained unconquered. So even the idea of the Incas remaining unconquered was something that stimulated resistance and rebellion all throughout Spanish colonial rule, different parts of the Andes. So if we have these failures and these limitations to the reality of conquest, Why then do we see the argument that this is a watershed moment, the triumph of guns and horses and armor and germs, these kind of interpretations, why do they still hold sway? I think one reason is that they're great metaphors. So when you make the Incas the best that the non-Western world has to offer, if you can make that, when that conquest looks easy, it becomes this definitive watershed moment. And so I think part of that, it simplifies the process. So part of it is also the Spaniards came back from Cajamarca in this, where they captured Atahualpa, uh, November 16th, 1532. It's nice to have a date to that, to say this is when the Inca fell. And maybe that's another thing is for the academic getting down into the weeds. If someone comes in, they say, well, did the Inca fall in 1532? You know, And you say... Do you have 40 hours for me to explain to you how much more complicated it is for non-historians to wrap their mind around it? A, A date is a comforting thing to hang a fact on. And so this is something that 1532 became a date because the Spaniards came back and then immediately said, we've conquered Peru, even though they hadn't done anything yet. They hadn't reached Cusco. It wasn't clear what they were going to do with Atahualpa. And and so they didn't know the rest of the story, but that's what got published. And because it was such a spectacular, unexpected thing for people in Europe, it got printed and reprinted. And so the idea of the conquest of Peru taking place then was a real thing then. And then for Spain, they became part of this miraculous saying, you know, well, if God didn't want Catholic Spain here, then God wouldn't have let us survive at Cajamarca, that, that this was a miracle that showed that we have divine support for our project. And so this is something that there's a kind of religious explanation that, especially in the Reformation, Catholic Spain was saying this moment was important and definitive because it also shows our divine support for the project that we have that's ongoing, that especially is about getting silver to maintain a political economy that can build an armada and sail it against the Tudors or fight against the Reformation, fight in the Netherlands against the Protestants, fight in the Mediterranean against the Ottomans. But I think another problem with that is the date gets picked up more recently because big history is often done by people who aren't trained as historians. And so sometimes I think if you have an ornithologist or an evolutionary psychologist that say, I'm going to tell you about humanity from the Stone Age to the present, 
people will fall back on these kinds of factoids of saying 1532 is a big deal. 1492 changed everything. And so, so this can be reinforced because historians maybe have a hard time toning down the nuance and getting out of the weeds to say, well, if not 1532, how did the Spanish conquer Peru in 50 words or less? That's a lot more challenging from the academic side of things. I don't know who you could possibly be talking about, Alan. But it certainly is true that we have absolutely clung on to 1532 and it has established itself in our minds. And the idea that this is really because the Spanish are saying it's so, you know, I conquered France last week. I need to share this with you now. And you can publish that and the world can know. You know, this is just this extraordinary sense of propaganda determining the facts in this case. You also make the conquest more complicated, or you point out that it is more complicated and more multifascinated by your work on thinking about class, or perhaps we might talk about rank or status, that actually in this period of time, you might have two conquering Spaniards who would not have identified with one another because they're at different levels of society, whereas a a member of nobility from the Inca society might have been on more of a par with the Spanish elite. Can you say a bit more about this idea about how rank complicates the story of the conquest? Yeah, when we think of 1532 as maybe when the West conquered the non-West and unpack that metaphor, maybe we unpack it to that's when Spain conquered the Inca. But then we have to unpack that even more to say exactly the point that you made, which is you have Europeans as well as people from Central America. So Francisco Pizarro's partner, Diego de Almagro, his son, who became the leader of one of the big factions in the early 1540s, his son was the son of an enslaved woman from Central America. He was half indigenous, half European. And so you have, there there are a lot of people of African heritage also that are in this. So what we think of as the Spanish is people from a lot of different regions. and But even the people that we think of as Spanish don't think of themselves as Spanish. So they might say, you know, I'm Castilian or I'm from this town or I'm from some other part of Europe. That They have a an artillery man, uh, Pedro de Candia, who's Greek. So on that side, you have people that have a lot of different identities. They come from different regions. They have different histories in the Americas. And then over time, you see more noble noble Iberians coming in as well, so that you have people that maybe weren't in the first conquest, but they're much more highly ranked. And a lot of those are the people that are coming in in an official capacity as viceroys or as judges or as people with permission to carry out new conquests. And there is a tension between the conquistadors who were there first and people that have this higher rank. And thinking about the conquistadors as mostly not men of high rank, on the Andean side, you have all of these different local people. Some of them are political administrators. Some come from non-Inca dynasties. Some come from noble Inca houses. And early on in the colonial period, when Inca noblemen and women became Christian, they received noble status from the Spanish crown. So you have this case where a conquered nobility is socially outranking the conquerors who are lower status in the countries that they come from. But in that sense, that's one of these things, the the process of the invasion and colonization 
disrupts all of these different kinds of networks of social power. So it, it shifts where economic control is. It changes different social statuses. Conversion is important in changing the status of indigenous people. And then if we think about kind of ordinary people, so at the very building blocks of Andean societies, the farming and herding communities, these are places that they were just disrupted from the time of the Inca Civil War through the first Spanish invasion and through these years of Spanish infighting. Local people just saw armies going back and forth and taking their people as porters and taking their food. And it's not until about the 1570s and 1580s that local people feel a sense of being reshaped into new communities and into a new subject status of the Spanish. That for ordinary Andean people, there's this just nightmare that lasts for about 40 years where there's not a lot of clear order in the everyday. There's not a lot of protection, a sense of predictability to the exploitation. And that's not to say that the Spanish rule was a humane one or a nice one. It just was one that was designed to be a little bit more transparent in what it was taking from Native people. If we think about the middle part of Inca society, people that are political administrators or provincial lords, these are people that are playing both sides. So you have people that aren't sure if the Inca is going to stay the ruler, and they're not sure if the Spanish are going to stick around or go home. And so you have people that are sometimes fighting one side and then the other and shifting alliances. So there's a lot of, if we take a more kind of intersectional approach to the identities that people have, of saying that you have Andean men and women had different prospects as this new colonial order was coming in, that early on Inca women are doing a lot of things that seem to serve their families. But within a generation, they've been cut out of what the new colonial order is going to look like. Regional identities and then different social statuses are also influencing how people would have absorbed and experienced these changes, and then also the kinds of strategies they might have had in either picking a side, trying to stay out of the fight, just trying to survive. Andean people are sitting on the hillside content to watch the Spaniards kill each other. Uh, they're just rooting for a lot of people to die at that moment. I hesitate to say this after everything we've talked about, but I do feel for the sake of completeness, I ought to ask, was there a moment at which the Spanish felt confident that their conquest had succeeded? Or was there a moment at which the Inca felt that they were truly defeated? I think that's such an interesting question because when I think about it, again, this is one of these, it, it would depend on who you ask and what their vantage <laughs> yeah. point is. But there's a, a curious moment that I hadn't really understood until writing this book where Francisco Pizarro is at court in 1529, negotiating with the Empress, Isabella of Portugal is the one that actually gives him his royal contract to go back. But he's not saying he needs to explore. He's actually come in and he said, I found this place. It's ruled by native lords. They are peaceful. It's civilized. And Charles V writes to his council around that time and he says, 250 Spaniards should do the job. We, sh we should be able to set up a successful colony here. And that's a moment before they even get there, before they conquer anything, where his contract spells out, here's how you're going to bring mining revenues online. Here are all the different municipal titles that Spaniards are going to have in the city of Tumbes that you're going to found. I think there's a moment of incredible optimism three years before they even come face to face with Atahualpa, where they're like, we've got a colony. And the, the thing that's 
really, really interesting for me is at court, they continue to write, send things to catch up with Pizarro. So you'll see letters where they're saying, oh, here's a nice guy. He's a priest. Can you give him a parish in Peru and, and put him in charge of some Indians? Here's a guy, give him a, a municipal position. So they believe that this is going to happen. And I think it's interesting that at court, it takes a couple of years of not getting letters back, that by 1532, by the time Pizarro is not founding colonies, but going up to have a confrontation with Atahualpa, Charles V is writing, I'd like to have a report to know what you've been doing and what you've founded, like what settlements have you established, if any, and what you've seen, because I have no idea that this is happening. So I, I think from the royal side, by 1532, and then after, there's a sense that this is not unfolding according to this design. I think for the conquistadors, it might have been in 1533, when they arrive in Cusco in the middle of an army of thousands of Inca soldiers with Inca lords and Inca princesses. They move into the Inca capital, avoiding battle with another Inca army. They manage to get their ally crowned in a ceremony where he also acknowledges that he is now a subject of Charles V. And I think in that moment, they take a breath. They're sort of like, OK, this is going to work. And very soon they hear that other Spaniards are coming into the Americas, that Pedro de Alvarado has sailed down from Guatemala and is trying to have a piece of their territory. And so the things that I think destabilize the Spaniards early on are other Spaniards coming in and threatening the things that they're laying claim to. And then it all falls apart. As I said, the Incas fight a war of what I would call reconquest. We could even think of it as a second Inca civil war, but trying to push the Spaniards out. And then I think there's not really a lot of a sense of security, either from Incas or from rebel Spaniards, until you get into the 1570s and 1580s, uh, that there's a lot of sense that Peru at times hangs by a thread, and with it, the fortunes of imperial Spain. The last thing I wanted to ask you was about the title of your book, because at the beginning of the book, you comment that being invited to write it was an intimidating opportunity. And I can see why, because your work broaches issues of feminist scholarship, of race, what we call class. You challenge the myths, the, the traditional historiography about this period of time. But I want to understand why, given everything we've heard, you decided to call this the Inca apocalypse. Why that's in your title? Because I'm conscious that what we've heard suggests that Perhaps this wasn't the disastrous moment <laughs> that we have thought it was. Does your title give away something about what, in your opinion, was the most important cause of the Spanish conquest of the Inca? The title, I think, came earlier than, in some ways, the sense of what it actually meant to the book. To me, it started from the sense of, I want to tell the story of a world that is ripped apart, you know, rather than something that's conquered, the idea of an Andean world that comes to an end of what it is. And in Inca thought, that is a model of, of thinking of the world as cycles of creation where a world is brought into being. There's a creator entity that raises the mountains up, that makes the water flow where it's supposed to go, that calls the first people out from their places. And that same being can come back and then shake things like an etch-a-sketch, uh, shake it back into a void that then new creation can take place on. So that was a thought for me. And at the same time, I didn't understand how apocalyptic 
the European side was. And the fact that you know, Christopher Columbus, by 1500, had this idea that God had chosen him to discover the Americas so that biblical prophecies would be fulfilled. And Columbus, he was going out looking for an alliance with the Mongols that would allow Christians to retake Jerusalem. And he believed literally that Jesus would come back to the earth around 1650. And so this was something that I thought that the idea of both worlds taken apart or worlds coming to an end and the idea of new worlds being made and new knowledge. This is what it kind of emerged into. I was surprised as I was writing, researching, just how much the thread flowed through, that you had Spanish rebels that are traveling with sorcerers and conjurers and necromancers that are occupying ancient Andean shrines and leaving spellbooks behind when they're driven out by the royalist army. The way that people are conjuring up dead Inca rulers to try and help them survive the world that's being brought into being. And so that was something that I think I started from the idea of apocalypse as the destruction of something, but then broadened out into that more classic Greek sense too of new knowledge being discovered and things being uncovered. And and that was another part of this is the way that when we go back to the original sources, we actually find a different story sometimes than the one that we've been telling. And that, that there are a lot of things that have been repeated to the point that we accept them as factual. I, I use the word factoid for that, to say something that's repeated until we think it's true. There's a lot of factoids around this story. And I think by digging into the primary sources, that helped me to see it is this complicated process of worlds ending and new worlds being brought into being and trying to understand the people that are making that happen and the choices that they're making. Well, this podcast has certainly been paradigm shifting and your book does that on a far grander scale. So people should pick up a copy of Inco Apocalypse if they've been stimulated by our discussion today. I certainly was. Thank you so much for all your insights and taking the time to share them with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you might also like to follow up on the story of Swarter Raleigh and his search for El Dorado with our podcast of that name, Walter Raleigh's Quest for El Dorado, with Matthew Lyons. And if you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. Please rate this podcast wherever you listen, now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed, at not just Tudors or by email not just the Tudors at historyhit.com. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new custom spray five in one gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.